Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Crown Capital's Q2 2021 results conference call. Please note that today's call contains forward-looking statements within the meaning of the applicable Canadian securities legislation. Forward-looking statements involve known and unknown risk and uncertainties, as well as other factors that may cause actual financial results, performance, or achievements to be materially different from estimated future results performance or achievements expressed or implied by those forward-looking statements. For a description of the risks associated with Crown's business, please refer to the company's filings for Q2 2021 at cdar.com. Following the call, we'll conduct a question and answer session. I would now like to turn the conference over to Mr. Chris Johnson. Please go ahead, sir. Uh, Well, thank you, operator, and good morning. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for attending, and welcome to today's call. I'm joined, as usual, by Mike Orveld, our Chief Financial Officer. Uh, given the changes that happened last quarter and the uh, progression of the business, we thought we'd use a, a slide deck. So for today's presentation, we'll have a webcast uh, uh, presentation. Uh, the materials are available on our website at www.crowncapital.ca to, to log into or download the presentation. It's been an active uh, period for the business, and we felt it was important to look at how we're performing against our strategic priorities. Uh, build on the disclosure pieces uh, uh, we reported this morning and our call from last quarter. So for those of you who've been following Crown for many years, you'll understand the transition of the business has undergo- undergone since the IPO. Building on our deep history of mid-market lending, beginning in 2018, we began the process of diversifying the new financing platforms such as Power where we could own a portion of the operating businesses and earn new fee streams acting as a multi-asset manager. In doing so, we increased our addressable market and added new diversified sources of recurring revenue. This has been an investment characteristic that's familiar to us in our lending business for nearly two decades. Fast forward to early 2020, last year, uh, we introduced a revised strategic direction which we've been hard at work at since that time. As you'll recall, the changes were response to a number of factors, including the economic uncertainty we were operating in, and like many companies, uh, publicly traded companies with large investment portfolios, we, we were trading at a significant and persist, persistent discount to our underlying net asset value. At that time, our trading value was much less than 50% of our book value. In particular, it was clear that our alternative corporate finance investments, while they uh, were performing loans and generating healthy income for us, were not being properly valued by the public markets. So we set out two main priorities that you'll see here. Uh, First, uh, reposition the balance sheet. We are shifting to a capital-light business model, reducing our exposure to loans-based investments and improving the efficiency of our capital. Freed up capital is being redirected to growth initiatives, paying down debt, and being returned to shareholders. Second, we continue to expand and diversify our platform with a focus on recurring revenue assets and asset-like businesses. We want a much greater proportion of our total earnings coming from operating businesses. The simple objective is growth of earnings per share, 
We believe that over time, earnings per share growth from a diversified set of operating businesses is the best path to long-term value creation. It's not an easy transition, uh, nor a, a quick one, but we've been moving consistently towards these objectives uh, over the last year. We anticipate 2021 would be a year of accelerated progress, and this has been the case. In terms of the balance sheet repositioning, a lot has been accomplished in recent quarters. The progress can be seen in three main areas. One, we're reducing our exposure to alternative lending, building on the sale of our investment in Crown Partners Fund in Q1. We recently announced the divestment of the majority stake of our fund management business, along with a portion of our investment in the fund. We've worked alongside the new ownership group for many years and believe that this new structure will provide a superior platform for the benefits of our corporate clients, institutional investors, and investment professionals. For Crown, this transaction provides meaningful liquidity to support our strategic initiatives. With the Q1 sale, uh, we generated proceeds of more than $20 million and reduced our ownership interest in the fund by 11% to 28%. As we disclosed, with the transaction, Crown has retained 100% of the performance fees earned from this fund, which as of the end of Q1 had an accrued value of $7.2 million. In addition, as Mike will expand on, this has allowed us to re significantly reduce our operating expenditures. The second area where we've made headway is returning capital shareholders. We've used the NCIB for several years now, and in the second quarter, we initiated a substantial issuer bid, which closed in late July. Over the past year, we've repurchased approximately $5 million worth of shares and reduced our shares of standing by 10%. The third way we've improved the balance sheet is by reducing debt. Again, since last year's Q2, we've reduced debt in the two credit facilities meaningfully. The balance of the fund facility is now down to roughly $15 million, and the core facility is down by, well, down by more than $15 million, and the core facility is down by more than $20 million over the same period. As we look to our remaining investments in alternative lending, uh, the Crown Power Fund, or the, sorry, correction, the Crown, Crown Partner Fund, which is where a meaningful amount of our capital is, sat around $218 million at the quarter with 10 investments in it. Our remaining investment is approximately $52 million compared to $75 million a year ago. We've managed this fund through a challenging cycle specific issues, yet the all-weather nature we have always touted has been able to generate and maintain a gross IRR of over 13% to date. The specifics are in our MD&A, but as a general statement, the portfolio is in good condition. We have some strong performance in the fund, and our expectation will see material prepayments in the next 12 months. Consistent with our strategy, the unwinding and divestment of these investments will result in repatriating a significant amount of capital. Regardless of the prepayments, there's a natural runoff as these loans mature. We've shown here on this uh, schedule this, the, the scheduled maturities uh, to better, better illustrate this point. The second key priority is to expand and diversify our platform. Today we have two primary platforms that are network services and distributed power, which we entered into 2019 and 2018 respectively. Both have the attributes we are looking for, including recurring revenue, through long-term contracts with, a, with high quality counterparties, as well as good long-term industry fundamentals. While the near-term focuses on these two, we will also look to other markets that exhibit similar characteristics. I'll review the network services business first. As a quick recap, we entered this market in 2019 through the acquisition of YRE, and expanded our footprint in 2020 
with the acquisition of Galaxy Broadband. In 2021, we leveraged the collective teams of Galaxy and YRE and created a third company called Community Network Partners. What we saw then, and this is being reinforced uh, over the last 12 months, is the long-term opportunity to better connect private enterprise customers, government entities, and communities in underserved areas. The majority of incumbents are generally not focused in these smaller markets. While still early days, this business has had an encouraging start. Network services revenue increased to $6.9 million in Q2, or 52% of total revenue, up from $1.9 million in Q2 2020 and $6.4 million in Q1 2021. The year-over-year increase reflects recognition of two full quarters of revenue from Galaxy following our acquisition in September of last year, as well as organic growth. We also have a growing pipeline of more than 80 million of new projects, and which includes 100, greater than 100 community network partnership opportunities. The end customers here are generally government agencies, resource companies, and remote communities. The group is focused on converting more of these opportunities and continue to scale. As our investments grow, we will continue to raise commitments from third-party investors to fund the future growth of this asset class. Just to give you a couple examples of the type of work our partners are involved in, um, we have uh, three examples on this page here, uh, ranging from um, uh, remote camp work through to mines and some First Nations communities, which are all examples of uh, uh, growth areas. Uh, we have multiple customers in these, but we're also seeing a number of our pipeline uh, um, uh, customers in these asset classes as well. See the slide that's frozen on my screen. I'm not sure if others are seeing that, but uh, someone can maybe go past that one to get the distributed power. Okay, well, I'll keep going. They don't seem to be advancing. Um, so during distributed power, we talked about the market opportunity a fair bit in the past. Our thesis remains largely intact, and many businesses are not getting reliable or affordable power supply, and distributed generation addresses this need. It's proven technology and has attractive investment characteristics, including the long-term contracts that generate recurring revenue with significant downside protection. We've created a new business line here, and not surprisingly, we've had some challenges and headwinds along the way. Well, we do have live projects that are serving as reference customers, and we believe they'll help accelerate future sales. Today, we have five projects in operation and another six under development. We also have a significant pipeline of over $125 million. On the next page here, we have a few examples of, of actual projects in the fund, um, including multi-residential buildings, uh, energy gas plants, and uh, Sorry, correct. I can't even see the last one here right now. Um, and, and a commercial operation. Um, in, in all cases, we have long-term power purchase agreements. And, uh, and, and as I mentioned with the network services, considerable opportunity to grow in each of these verticals. So if we can progress to the slide 12, um, we're, we're in the process of winding down our uh, through the process of winding down our Penequity Mill Street loans, we've acquired uh, pieces of those businesses and are working those through to liquidity. 
so during 2021, we acquired the three residential developments um, uh, comprising the essentially were the principal remaining properties of Penn Equity. These included uh, two commercial retail developments, one being in Stony Creek and one being in London, and, and one high-density multi-residential uh, development in uh, Barrie. Also during the quarter, we acquired Lumberman's Credit Group. Um, it's an Ontario-based construction credit reporting company in exchange for uh, some cash and, and some debt assumption from Mill Street. Uh, these are assets we believe can generate significant value for our shareholders. Um, we've taken them on at, uh, at fairly low points of their valuation, uh, reflecting the environment we took them over in. And we think by some time to stabilize the assets, nurture and grow them, uh, will create significant value for our shareholders. So with that, I'll turn the call over to Mike. All right, thanks, Chris. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, our press release and full financials for the quarter were filed uh, yesterday evening, so uh, uh, my remarks here will be fairly brief. Uh, as usual, I'll start by talking about revenues. Uh, we reported a total revenue of $13.1 million in Q2. That's uh, compared with $13.3 million a year ago. So a similar level, uh, but a much different composition of revenue much less driven by investment gains this year and supported by a much higher contribution for more recurring network services revenues. Um, interest income uh, was lower year over year, consistent with trend and consistent with the theme of our strategic shift away from capital intensive investment activity. Uh, interest income earned by Crown Partners fund declined in line with the reduction in average interest uh, yielding investments in that fund. Uh, we no longer earn interest through Crown uh, Private Credit Fund as it uh, no longer holds any interest generating assets. And uh, interest income from Crown Power Fund, while still fairly small in the mix, was up almost threefold uh, year over year to $750,000 in the quarter. Uh, a key highlight, uh, which uh, Chris called out, was the continued growth of the uh, network services platform in terms of both revenue stream and operating profit. Uh, this segment represented more than 50% of total revenue in the quarter and generated uh, $2.6 million and $4.7 million of income before income tax, financing charges, and depreciation and amortization in Q2 and year-to-date, uh, respectively. Uh, so, let me put it another way, this relatively new operating segment of Crown generated EBITDA at an annualized rate of $9.4 million in the first half of 2021. And as mentioned earlier, the net investment gains represented uh, less of a contribution to Q2 earnings this year, or revenues, I should say. Um, uh, in fact, it was a net investment loss of $0.8 million in Q2 of 2021 compared with a net investment gain of $3.4 million in Q2 of 2020. Uh, moving on to uh, slide 14 um, and turning to our bottom line results, we did have a net loss of $0.3 million in Q2. Uh, it's mainly due to uh, uh, the $0.8 million net inv investment loss I just mentioned and to a provision for credit losses of $1.8 million Overall, our net loss this quarter was an improvement year over year, and our year-to-date net income of a million dollars is better than the $2.8 million loss recorded in the first half of last year. 
in addition to our IFRS uh, earnings, um, just as a reminder, we do also disclose, as always, adjusted funds from operations, or AFFO, which makes several adjustments to reported earnings to exclude things like financing costs, amortization, unrealized gains, and provisions for credit losses. Uh, a full description and reconciliation to earnings uh, can be found at the end of our MDNA. And in Q2 of 2021, we earned AFFO of $3.2 million, that's 36 cents per basic share, compared with $3.6 million, or 38 cents per basic share in Q2 of 2020. And in the first half of this year, we earned AFFO of $7.7 million, comparable to 2020. Total assets increased to $332.5 million. At quarter end, that compared with $326.2 million at the end of December. As Chris mentioned, during the quarter, we acquired 100% um, of the equity of PRC Barry Corp and 100% of Lumberman's Credit Group. Uh, both transactions were primarily in exchange for portions of the remaining balances outstanding on our loans to Penn Equity and Mill Street, respectively. And you'll find full details on how these impacted our financial results in notes 13 and 14 of our Q2 financial statements. I'd note that uh, the net impact of the acquisition of the net assets of PRC Barry in particular was to increase each of our total assets and total liabilities, mainly due to the addition of the full $13.6 million value of the Barry property to property under development and to the addition of $9.2 million of related mortgage loans to liabilities. You know, so to be clear, the fact that our total assets increased in Q2 is not contrary to our intention to become more asset-like, but rather it reflects a grossing up of assets and of liabilities as we uh, continued to restructure our Penn Equity investment, uh, resulting in the conversion of portions of that loan investment into the full consolidation of asset-heavy real estate entities. Uh, total equity at quarter end was $81.5 million. It's $9.05 per basic share. Uh, that's up from $81.2 million, or $8.98 per share at the end of 2020. As Chris mentioned, our SIB closed in early July, resulted in the repurchase of approximately 560,000 shares at $5.50 per share, which uh, in itself has already been accretive to our book value per share uh, coming into Q3. And finally, I'll just make a quick comment to reiterate that our liquidity and leverage have both improved significantly. Uh, including the impacts of the carve-out transaction involving the credit fund management business in July that Chris discussed. That transaction raised proceeds of $16.3 million, which was used to partially repay our corporate-level credit facility, which, as of today, now has $8.4 million outstanding and a total commitment of $20 million. Uh, we were also able to use cash to settle the SIB transaction in July, uh, leaving us with uh, a still comfortable level of cash in the bank today. And as uh, uh, prepayments and repayments of loans are received in Crown Partners Fund, which is our near-term expectation, uh, and once the fund level cr credit facility has been fully repaid, uh, any excess proceeds will be distributed to limited partners of the fund, including Crown, and that will only uh, further improve our leverage and liquidity. Uh, with that, I'm going to turn it back to Chris uh, for some closing remarks. Okay, well, great. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so clearly, it's been a fairly active uh, quarter and first half of the year as we've uh, advanced our strategic priorities. Um, we've made particularly 
uh, significant steps in bringing capital back from the fund as well as uh, positioning and growing our, our network services business. As we look ahead to the rest of 2021, we have fairly clear sight to you know additional catalysts and developments that are in line with strategic plan and, and confident that this is the right path for the company. Uh, we certainly appreciate your support as we navigate this transition period. Uh, our entire team is and board and management guided by the belief that by executing the strategy will emerge a more capital efficient, diversified business with a larger market opportunity and higher earnings. Uh, so we look forward to update you in the coming months and so we'll turn the call open for questions at this time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You'll hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request and your questions will be polled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star, followed by two. If you're using a speakerphone, please lift the handset before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. Okay, your first question comes from Chris Murray from ATB, sorry, ATB Capital Markets. Chris, please go ahead. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, folks. Um, just, I guess my first question is, is around the, um, the Partners Fund. Um, and so, you know, Chris, just, just looking at this, so I, I know you guys have sold the fund and you, you'll no longer control it, um, but is, is it your expectation that, um, that there'll be no more new loans generated in the fund? Is that, is that the best way to, to understand it? So it is a pure runoff type situation? Correct. It's fully, okay. it is, we, we've, uh, yeah, uh, even before we being sold, we notified the LPs we were in, in, in progressing to the harvest mode, so we're not making any new investments. Okay. Um, no, okay, so that just cleans that idea up. And then, um, you know, I'm just trying to think about, you know, what the company looks like, you know, when we see the Q3 report. Um, and, and just, a, you know, kind of an understanding about um, how to think about this. So, and Mike, maybe this is maybe a question more for you. So you're going to have, um, I guess, a carried interest in the partners fund. Um, you've got the telecom business, which you have, as you said, you know, kind of, you, you've always shown that as an operating company. Um, and then I guess you have the power fund, which might be showing some interest income. So just, just help me understand, um, because it's always been kind of complicated because there's always been consolidations and things like that to understand. Like, what does a company look like on a go forward basis in terms of uh, being functional? And I think, you know, my real, the, the end goal of, of this question is to understand, you know, how do we judge um, or how should we be thinking about financial performance on a go-forward basis, given your comment about wanting to focus on growing EPS? Okay, um, so so a few, I guess, things to, to touch on there. Um, 
you know, first of all, uh, we, we've, we've yet, to, we've yet to, to really nail this down, frankly, with our auditors, but um, our expectation is that we'll be able to begin deconsolidating uh, the Crown Partners Fund going forward, which, uh, if that uh, happens, uh, will, um, uh, you know, certainly clean up the, the, the amount of disclosure and the level of disclosure and make it a lot easier for readers such as yourself to sort of see what's happening there, because, as we go forward, uh, no longer being managers of the fund, you know, we're participating in this as, as an investment, and that's an investment that will have a declining balance, and you know, we would much prefer to be able to present it as such and have, have, uh, have, have you track it accordingly. Um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of the businesses themselves, outside of that, you're right, we, we uh, you know, we, we it will look a lot the same as what we have now, except that's where the capital will be reallocated uh, to the extent that it is reallocated. So on the network services side, um, you know, we, we have, you know, there, are, there, are, there is management in place in the operating businesses there. Uh, Lumbermans, there's management in place in the operating business and that's consolidated in. Uh, Pen Equity, while we now um, have full ownership of the entities that, uh, that own those, these uh, projects, uh, you know that that's a uh, that's a, a fairly sizable and well-functioning organization with its long-standing management. So, you know, gradually what you're seeing is uh, Crown as an entity uh, morphing a little bit more into, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, for lack of better phra phrasing, uh, almost a holding company um, uh, in in structure with its various kind of divisions. Uh, the Power Fund, of course, is still managed by us, and we are very close to each of these operating companies uh, on a go-forward basis. From a disclosure point of view, um, you know, as the Power, as the Partners Fund, I should say, and lending activities in general uh, diminish, uh, and ultimately to the point of not even being in our mix, uh, you know, we will be increasing. Uh, the level of segmented information that we'll be providing on each of these various lines of businesses. Uh, not yet sure um, how extensive that will be in Q3 versus Q2, um, but that's definitely our goal, and it's uh, and it's and it's uh, it's inevitable as as we uh, as we continue down this path. So I'm not sure if I answered your questions uh, in full there, Chris, or not. But if not, uh, uh, just Feel free to follow up. Yeah, no, I, I think what I'm trying to understand, Mike, and, and I appreciate the fact that, you know, it's still early days and there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, you know, I, because in a lot of ways, I, I agree with you. It, it's sort of like you're going to be ending up um, as a holding company of, of a number of different uh, items. And, and, you know, whether it's, you know, we're looking at EBITDA in the, in the, in the telecom business or the, or it's the uh, you know the valuation of, of of the book value of the of the fund, um, you know it's just going to be challenging to see. Um, but I guess the other part of the question was um, was about why focus on kind of like the driving of the EPS number as opposed to something like a cash flow number or something like that, um, or is it just kind of you know it's just a way to to, to anchor to a metric and move from there. Honestly, like we would prefer, uh, I, I think I can speak on behalf of Chris as well as myself, we would prefer to increasingly be measured on more of a cash flow EBITDA type uh, metric. I mean, the fact of the matter is we're not, you know, if you, if you look at the mix of our assets and businesses, we're not fully in a place where, where, where you can look at us holistically that way. Um, the network services businesses 
um, really that's the only way I think to look at them. Uh, uh, you know, something like a lumberman's. It's very asset light in nature, it's small in the mix, but that is an, an EBITDA contributor out of the gates and will continue to be. Um, I guess as we go through this this, uh, this this period of strategic transition, you know, we do have things like these real estate assets that, as Chris pointed out, we think there's an awful lot of potential to add value from the point we're at. Um, and so, you know, you shouldn't be considering these to be things that we would be looking to liquidate at first opportunity. They're going to be with us for some time as we work through these. Those are not necessarily EBITDA generative. So you're going, so it, it gets you back to a position where you probably have to look at us as a collection of various assets, but increasingly we're trying to get to the point where those assets uh, will be uh, EBITDA generative, at least uh, the ones that are growing in the mix. Okay, and then to your point... Chris, and just to your question, EPS versus EBITDA, for example, um, given our near-term objectives and and recent history of buying back shares, um, we expect that, that number to continue to decline. So therefore, we're getting, it's not just what's happening on the top line, the numerator is also the denominator that's changing. All right, that's fair. Um, and then just the other question I've got for you is in terms of the, the real estate holdings and, and your, your comment about, you know, the, just the development of those, um, is it fair to think that, um, you know, those things will be subject to most of the normal real estate rules where we'll see, uh, you know, you'll get an appraisal valuation and just write up or down the value of the assets just on a regular basis, even if we're not seeing kind of earnings come off of them? Is that a, is that a way to think about it? I think I think this is a cat that, that's an, we yes, we'll get appraisals, Mike. I think you need to I don't I don't have the answer in terms of how it's gonna grow through our financial yeah, in terms of how the well so so the because we consolidate these entities and their assets are not held at fair value, we'll be capitalizing um I guess any any incremental investment uh to the to the balance. Um, I don't know to what extent we'll be uh, able to or in position to present, call it, fair value updates on those real estate assets since they're not carried at fair value. Um, So I think think we'll we'll, we'll have to do our best to communicate uh, where we think that value sits relative to the carrying value. But again, these these will be carried as, uh, you know, at at book, book value. Okay, fair enough. I'll get back into queue. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, should you wish to ask a question, uh, please ensure you're not on speakerphone and press star followed by one. Your next question comes from Trevor Reynolds from Acumen Capital Partners. Please go ahead, Trevor. Morning, guys. Morning, Trevor. Hey, um, just uh, wondering about the deployment uh, runway for the network services division, um, where that kind of sits. Well, we have, a, as I mentioned, there's uh, dozens of projects we're working on uh, right now, and we have a pipeline that's like an active working pipeline of uh, $80 million, and then there's also acquisitions we're targeting um, or working towards that. Uh, Maybe bring that up over forty million dollars. Um, so it's uh, now that's total project value. So that would be um, 
not all equity, so it wouldn't be all Crown's money uh, for starters. And then secondly, it's eventually over time that's not all spent in 2021. It's you commit to the project, it might get built over the next maybe as much as two years. Um, so that that would we would see that transition to a fund uh, type of structure as well. What uh, what could we be looking for then? I guess in in 2021 in terms of a, a reasonable uh, deployment number. Well, I think right now we, we projects that are late stages we're, we're well into the uh, 20s of millions of dollars, 20 25 million dollars of projects that are actually committed right now, and then it's just the function of what else gets signed up. So I don't I don't can't really give you a more specific answer. It's still early days in some of these communities. That's fair. That's fair. Um, and then when would you expect to start seeing revenue generated from those projects? Uh, well, revenue, given that we own um, developers, uh, gets generated right when we start working on the project. So there's development fees that that get earned. Um, so that that we'll see some of that in 2021. And then, um, like if you kind of break it down, there's that's the first thing that hits you, and then you end up getting some. Um, We'll, we'll learn some as an investor. Uh, we do capitalize some interest that goes through the build process, and then ultimately get paid, you know, a recurring revenue for owning the network. Um, so that's those all kind of happen as the project gets built and then turned on, and then ultimately once it's on, then we earn um, network manager fees, like service fees for that as well. So it's a it, it's a sort of set of steadily build build an amount of fee income we generate off of that. Got it. Okay. Um, and then uh, on the distributed power side, uh, maybe just kind of where that uh, sits at. I know you got 11 kind of uh, total projects in in total with uh, with what you have on stream and in construction. Um, is that uh, you know is that is that steadily growing today or is that uh, flatlined for now? I know there was some um, uh, some changes in the market activity. Just uh, curious where that sits today. Yeah, so I think it's taken a bit of a pause. Um, the uh, like I think we mentioned in the previous call, like the um, Canadian federal government's carbon tax, um, you know, certainly made doing natural gas fire generators in certain markets more difficult. You know, being Ontario in particular, um, you know, it hasn't hasn't impacted Alberta as much. Uh, but we had a number of projects that were late stage or even close to underway and uh, and, and those, those are not proceeding it, it goes directly into the price of natural gas and that affects the fuel costs and it's even, even if we weren't bearing it it was our customers bearing it and they they pulled the pin on those ones um, we have signed up uh, since then uh, a number of multi-unit residential buildings um, that's one where we're able to get a very high efficiency of the project and use the natural gas we're basically Displacing natural gas with natural gas, so you're not really in the, the same uh, uh, carbon tax situation. Um, and Alberta is is it's from what we're doing is displacing grid sales that are primarily produced by more carbon intensive generation than what we're putting on. So we would have very li limited impact on certain of those projects. So we're we're still seeing that you know that market being pretty viable and and. We've got a number of larger projects that I think are going to be closed this fall. That'll put us kind of right back to where we want to be with this thing. But in terms of the the general commercial uh, growth that we were 
contemplating and working towards in Ontario, that's that's not happening, not anytime soon. Got it. Okay, and I know that uh, the U.S. was also uh, a hope there in terms of expanding. Is that uh, is that still on the table? Yeah, for sure. Um, we uh, like it's it's you got I guess a lot of work's being done on that. Um, it's not like we're in a position to sign up deals right away. You've got to, our, our our developers have been building relationships with the um, call it the hands and feet part of the business that turn wrenches and install stuff and keep it running. Um, so that, those relationships are being established in the markets we're we're, we're moving into. Um, but it's uh, the U.S. is a much more viable market um, policy-wise uh, than Canada's for this type of generation. Got it. And then uh, pro forma, the um, the sale of the lending business. Uh, what is your kind of total deployable capital today? Um, I, I understand there's uh, additional available through the the fund on the the power side, but uh, just curious for the network side and just just crown as a whole. What uh, what do you think you have as deployable capital today? Well, just, just maybe working backwards is we we have identified that we're earmarking 25 million, the same number for power. We've kind of place held that now for network for a little bit. Um, we don't intend to deploy a lot more of corporate capital into those those assets. Um, the you know we, we may use um, some of the capital to do more of the M&A side of things where we're buying the developers as opposed to funding projects. So that's one where we think we can get very good returns on equity uh, doing that. We don't really have a budget for that. We, we know we have a lot of capital coming back. Um, we feel that we have more capital coming back than we can uh, deploy. Um, so we've you know, said we're still looking at you know, additional buybacks and additional deleveraging where it makes sense. Um, but uh, but yeah, we, 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 we have, I don't know if the, the exact number matters as much anymore because you know we're, we have enough to fill up our commitments we've made to the uh, the two platforms we have and we feel we have more than enough to, to contribute to the uh, the growth and just the question of timing and how much uh, of the money coming back we'll look to you know have further returns of capital shareholders got it and then are you are you guys able to provide kind of a run rate um, either revenue or, or funds for number right now yeah, I think Mike gave you a bit of that. I mean, Mike, do you want to just maybe repeat some of the numbers you, you kind of, if you annualize? Yeah, and and, and I apologize, Trevor. I, I, I couldn't hear the last word that you said. Are you referring to run rate on the network services? Uh, well, yeah, just in just as the biz, the business as a whole, as you see it with uh, with interest coming from uh, the the fund, the alternative lending still and. Uh, just kind of where, where your run rate like is, is Q2 is Q2 a good proxy moving forward or obviously um, counting well, for what you've changed in the working interest sorry um, I see what you're saying in terms of in terms of the uh, the, the okay so if you, if you take a step back uh, the interest you know uh, and, and I, I, it sounds like you're talking about the company overall yeah um, exactly. yeah. yeah yeah so our working interest has fallen from uh, to 28% in the fund, uh, in the in partners fund. So, if you uh, if uh, I don't have all the numbers handy, but if you go through that MDNA, we do break out each revenue type by contribution, and so anything that we that you saw come through to us uh, this quarter 
And in terms of interest revenue, right, from Crown Partners Fund, that that you you would just simply notch that back proportionately, right, from yep. 36.5 to 28%. Um, and say that that's the run rate. Now that's the run rate now. As we get loans repaying, right, that then that would proportionately come down because on balance the loans are all a similar level of uh, interest contribution. Uh, you'll notice that uh, the, if looking at that, at the MDNA breakdowns, there were virtually no fees uh, that have uh, come from Crown Partners Fund this quarter and I think in recent quarters because we earn fees really in a few different ways one of which is uh, the primary way is when you make new loans, and of course we're not making any new loans. Uh, you make them, you make, you can make fees when you uh, when you're sort of restructuring and managing loans along the way. But things have been fairly static recently as as conditions have improved in in, in the portfolio. So we're not there's not a lot of fees there. But as you get repayments, there will be some uh, potentially significant fees coming through there. So that one you can't really peg a run rate on. That'll just happen as it happens with repayments. Uh, network services, um, you know, I think what you're seeing in the quarter is probably a better run rate than um, colleges year to date. Uh, things are progressing quite well. Uh, we actually have some some nice growth uh, expectations, but you know, we're um, I, I'm going to stop short of, 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 of giving a growth forecast there, but that's representative of what we're earning today. And in terms of gains and losses, uh, uh, you know, those are what they are. They tend to be choppy by nature, but we think we're in a pretty good place right now with the portfolio when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, that line going forward. Got it. And then those those remaining six projects on the power side, they'll, they'll start uh, contributing at what point? Do you expect? Uh, they're fairly. They're not, they're not. It's fairly even. Like there's not like there's a bunch of them all. Like some of them are very very close, like a month away, and you know maybe in a week or two away, and some might take another six months. But uh, but they're all progressing at different rates. Got it. All right. Thanks for taking my question. No problem. Right here. Your next question comes from Ashif Lalani, a private investor. Please go ahead. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Um, first off, I just want to thank the management team and the board for um, providing liquidity, liquidity to shareholders who clearly needed it. Um, it's a great opportunity for us to create value for the rest of the shareholders, so thank you for that. Um, and, and secondly, I just wanted to ask about um, the network services business um, and, and the utility business. How, how would you describe the, the, the total um, – you know, ROIC over the lifespan of these contracts. How, like, how should I think about it? Should I think about it as an annuity, or are there other end dates to these contracts that have to be, and it has to be reinvested and put in at some point? So we have a fair number of different contracts, so it's not like there's one answer to that. Like, we would, uh, uh, and I don't, uh, it, there's, there's a range, and I don't really want to get into exactly that, given it's, there's, it is competitive out there, but um, I would just say, like, from a, an, an unleveraged standpoint, you're you're comfortably into the double digits category, so we're able to generate um, reasonably, and these assets lend themselves to reasonably good leverage. So you're into the depending on where you put it, you know, minus some cost to run it. You're you're, you're high teams uh, on an, on an equity front to do them. We, we would have some contracts that are um, fairly 
fixed in life. Um, like that may be two, three, four years, five years kind of thing, and and maybe you're supporting a commercial customer for a limited life. And in the satellite business, in fact, you may have some customers you're supporting them on a very transitional basis, like a three month, two, three month basis. Um, like, I, I, but I can tell you in the satellite business, we've had some customers for you know almost two decades. Uh, some mines that are you know entirely dependent upon you know satellites for their communications. Um, the community projects are, are are geared to be sort of not less than uh, 10 years and more likely 30-year contracts, where you know you're putting in fiber to the home, to the business, um, and and that's you know expected to be the the state of the art for for many many years. And uh, so it's it, so your the question to amortization is really depends. Um, like you're doing a microwave contract that might be there for three years, you're trying to get all your money back plus return in that period. If you're doing a fiber, you're, you're probably not using 30-year amortizations, but using at least 15. And, uh, and yeah, you're taking a much longer view of the cash flows. Are there, are there any um, public comps that, that we can look at for either of the businesses? None that really jumped to mind. Um, like, in a way, it's somewhat the thesis we have that we're targeting markets where there's a gap, and, and there is a series of, and the gap is when you got an industry that's generally being supplied by large incumbents, uh, but you've had a change of technology or something, but there's been some kind of disruption that's been occurring, and then you have these smaller, more private companies that are are, are able to you know become players because of that change and you know it's the power industry like we're going up against the local distribution companies the regulated you know part of the marketplace and you know obviously massive companies with massive balance sheets and um, you know I, I don't I don't don't think it's a reasonable comp and in the telecom you, you're going up against the, the traditional incumbent carriers and uh, you know there are smaller companies out there doing it but they're not public um, so I, I I don't really think there's a like I, I would just say you did fall into that uh, we have, we have a fair bit of experience with just companies and what's going on with valuations I would say that the recurring revenue companies tend to fall at the higher end of the valuation spectrum um, so that, that that's where I'd benchmark our companies we won't find exactly a network services company per se as your comp right. Thanks, guys. It's uh, really exciting. I think the story is uh, is shifting up uh, way, way better than I expected. Um, you know, when I bought the stock, um, you know, last year. So thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Chief. Take okay. care. There are no further questions at this time. I'll turn it back to Chris. Okay. Well, I didn't have much else to add. So uh, again, appreciate the uh, the active Q and A today. And uh, as well as always, uh, please reach out to us if you want to talk further about these issues. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.